Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. As a companion piece to Cold-Blooded, these are just some additional episodes to give you a greater insight into the crimes and lives of Private Carl Holton, alias Ricky Allen, and Elizabeth Baker, alias Georgina Grayson. The regular episodes of Murder Mile return at the end of January, with possibly a little surprise in between. Until then, thank you, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year. Okie dokie, folkies. Hey, hope you're all well. Hope you're all having a good Christmas. And uh, by the time I send this out, it won't be New Year, but you never know. Uh, <laughs> it may get delayed. Who knows? Who knows? Um, anyway. In the last episode, I think what I said was uh, I was going to send you the third statement that Carl made. Um, I did record that. I put that out. But when it, when I was re-listening back to it, I realized that there wasn't enough changes in the statement for you to kind of warrant like a 20-minute episode. So instead, I've decided to do something different. I'm going to give you some uh, little secrets, some little details that didn't make it into the episode that I think are really fascinating. So uh, we're going to go through them one by one, and we're going to start with the post-mortem report on George Heath. So I put in a couple of details in there, but let, um, what I'm going to do is go through the whole lot with you. Um, we're going to do the post-mortem report. Uh, I've also got in there the medical reports for Carl and Elizabeth when they arrived in prison. Uh, the statement of Henry Kimball, also known as Henry Kimberley. Um, Robert Churchill, who was the gun expert, we got a good statement from him. That's really fascinating. That's really good. And I'll let you into some uh, little details on that. But also, there was another detail in there that no one ever talks about. And I, I think it gives you a better insight into who Elizabeth, i.e. Georgia, i.e. Georgina, uh, actually is. So let's go through them one by one. Uh, we're going to do the uh, post-mortem report. So this was done by Dr. Donald Tier on the 7th of October 1944 at Feltham. Feltham was the nearest mortuary to where he was found. A uh, body was found at 9am in the morning in a ditch near Staines. Um, external examination. They always have to start with this. It says, uh, well-nourished adult male. If you've gone to any kind of inquest and the coroner turns up, they always have to say, well-nourished. Uh, unless, of course... They're not well nourished, but that just means you know average human. Uh, five foot eight, in, eight inches in height. Um, rigor mortis was firmly established throughout the body. 
Hypostatis was present in the front of the body. So hypostatis is uh, where the kind of uh, blood vessels have started to rupture and they've come to the surface. So so the skin has gone from a kind of a... What kind of colour is he? Well, same as me. So kind of a, page, uh, a pale peachy colour. He would have gone to more of a kind of a reddy, bluey colour. Uh, so that's hypostasis. Um, hypostasis was present in the front of the body and most marked uh, in the face and neck. A blanched pressure mark of two inches in diameter was seen on the front side of the forehead. Two post-mortem abrasions were seen at the edge of this mark. Uh, one three quarters of an inch long and one a quarter of an inch wide just to the right of the midline the other a quarter of an inch in diameter just above the outer edge of the right eyebrow another small post-mortem abrasion an inch long uh, by a quarter of an inch wide was seen on the right lower leg just above the ankle bone the point of the shin was slightly displaced to the right and fixed uh, in that position by rigor mortis so as you can see those those aren't um they're not vital they're not causes for his death these are just injuries that may have happened to him as he fell as he fell forward in the car as he was being dragged out of the car as he was being thrown in the ditch um there's no reference in there to any of these being uh older injuries these seem to seem to have happened within the time frame of his death internal examination the entrance wound of the bullet was found in the back, one inch to the right of the midline at the level of the sixth rib. An exit wound was found on the front of the chest, one and a quarter inches from the midline at the level of the third, bri- uh, of the third rib. So uh, it came in through the back. Uh, I think it said it just nicked the lower side of the sixth rib at the back. And because he was turning, so it went in at the right hand side, it went through the uh, spinal cord uh, nicked the top of the top of the lobes of the lung uh, and then came out through the left hang on what position right left left hand side of the uh, the um, uh, front of the chest central nervous system obviously with with uh, post-mortems they have to cover everything they can't cover everything such as poisonings and things like that unless of course a detective says this is really important you need to focus on the poisoning for this but obviously because it's clear that he was clearly shot that's what they're going to focus on Uh, central nervous system the brain and its coverings were pale and there was no natural disease circulatory system the heart was not uh the heart was not contracted in in systole the heart muscle and valves were perfectly healthy there was no hardening of the arteries so what they're trying to do there is is get across the idea that he didn't die of natural causes they have to rule everything out because if if say he's got a really really congested heart uh right there and uh maybe some kind of advanced cancer or something like that if he's being shot the the defense could turn around and say yes he was shot but do you know what maybe he died just before that because of all of his illnesses or do you know maybe if he had a clot in his brain maybe that caused his death and technically the shooting was post-mortem it's kind of remote but you know they have to rule out all these things respiratory system so all this is broken down in categories respiratory system three pints of blood and a clot were found in the right chest the bullet had penetrated the the bullet had penetrated the lower pole of the upper lobe of the right lung and emerged through the upper pole of the right lower lobe. 
This lung was collapsed, a quantity of blood and mucus was found in the air passages, and a little blood had run into the left lung. The stomach contained some partially digested food taken two to four hours previously, in which potato could be recognised. Don't forget, some uh, some foods digest faster than others. Some don't, so especially starchy foods tend to stay there for a while. Things that are darker in colour, things with a, a kind of a harder skin. Um, we know that he had a meal. Um, so this is two to four hours before his death. Uh, so... They're saying roughly around nine o'clock. It was about right. He went out for a, um, he went out to the pub, the pineapple with his girlfriend, Violet, and they had a meal back at her house in Westminster at about eight o'clock. So he's not too far off with that. Um, there was no indication of recently taken alcohol, which was true. He didn't drink. Uh, he didn't drink when he was driving, um, even though legally in that era you could, but he didn't. Uh, the liver was pale, gallbladder almost empty, pancreas and intestines normal. Uh, Genito-urinary, kidneys and testicles normal. The bladder, con- uh, the bladder contained less than one ounce of clear urine, so he'd clearly been to the toilet before he was shot at some point. Uh, spleen pale, um, ink staining. Uh, ink staining was seen on the first three fingers of the right hand uh, and the palm of the left hand. So don't forget, George had a uh, a fountain pen that was given to him as a gift from his girlfriend, Violet. Um, initially, when this case came out, even though uh, a lot of people seem to call it the cleft chin murder, which really, really antagonizes me, because just because he's got a cleft chin you don't have to frame it as the cleft chin murder because he wasn't killed because of his cleft chin. I just, it, that kind of shit is tabloid crap that really, really Fs me off. Uh, it'd be like if he had a wonky eye, you wouldn't call it the wonky eye murder, but tabloid press do. And I think it's, I think it's insulting when podcasters and authors pick up on that as well. So if you see anyone do that, you should reprimand them for doing that because it's just tabloid shite. Um, but originally the press uh, referred to this as the ink finger murders because the tabloids are like that. They know they know that the audience is thick. Therefore, they have to pick up on a tiny detail in order to go, oh, I can't remember the person's name or where he was killed, but I remember he had a cleft chin and ink on his fingers. Therefore, we'll call it this. Oh, dear God. Um, blood group. Uh, his blood group was AB, which is one of the ra- rarer blood groups occurring in 4% of the population in this country. Um, ordinarily, if he'd been uh, stabbed or if it was a fight in the street and someone had died and there was lots of different types of blood, this would have been really useful, given the fact that his blood is AB. Uh, it doesn't say exactly what type of AB. They, they weren't at the point where they could differentiate different types of AB. <coughs> um, so that would have been useful. But because only he was shot and they'd wiped away pretty much all the blood out of the car as well, it was kind of irrelevant. But it's useful to know in this kind of case. The pathologist has to cover that. Um, conclusions. From consideration of the degree of rigor mortis, hypostasis and freshness of the body, it seems extremely uh, probable that this man died between 11pm on the night of the 6th of October and 6pm the following morning. Uh, so he died at uh, 2.30, so he's, he's, he's bang on, it's absolutely in the middle. The freshness of the body alone suggests that he died towards the latter hour. Uh, he placed... So he was placed in the position where he was found, certainly within six hours. 
so that's right. The body was found at 9 p.m. Um, uh, he was placed there at a just... Uh, it would have been about 3, 3.30, so about right. And most probably within two hours of death, which is correct. Uh, there were no marks on the body to suggest that any struggle had occurred immediately before his death. The wound could not be self-inflicted. Uh, they have to cover that. They have to make sure, even though his body was found, he'd been shot. They have to make it clear in the if it's if it's not a suicide, they have to they have to rule that out immediately. Uh, the wound could not have been self-inflicted and was due to the discharge of a weapon, certainly uh, not in contact with the with the very near not in contact or very near the body the weapon was discharged from a position slightly above and to the left of the entrance wound there was considerable hemorrhage around the spinal cord at the level of the sixth sixth seventh and eighth dorsal vertebrae and the spinal cord had been perforated on the right hand side this hemorrhage would would make involuntary movement of the legs impossible within a few seconds of the shot being fired, uh, and the hemorrhage in the chest and the damage to the lung indicated that the man would not have lived more than 15 minutes. Um, that would have been a horrible 15 minutes for him dying, not being able to move, not being able to do anything, his lungs filling with blood. He can barely communicate. He's, you know, he's just... He's just slumped there, slowly dying and being driven to uh, where they're going to dump him. Um, Cause of death, hemorrhage from a bullet wound to the chest. Uh, And that was signed off uh, Dr. Donald Tear, 8th of October, 1944. So there's that one. Uh, So that was the post-mortem. I think that tells you kind of everything you really need to know about that. Um, Let's dive into... Let's do... So this is Robert Churchill. Uh, Robert Churchill was the... Um, uh, he, he's a gunmaker, but he specialised in kind of helping out the Metropolitan Police because he's, a, he's a, a specialist in what he did. Um, and if they needed a, an expert in kind of... This is before the era where they actually had their own experts in guns and ballistics. And don't forget, we this is Britain. We don't have everyone walking around with guns. This is Even though you could still walk around with a gun then... The only people who really walked around with guns were criminals. Uh, so, so, you know, an average person wouldn't walk around with a gun or a weapon, and neither should they. Um, so we're going to do his statement. His statement is on uh, November the 15th, 1944. Uh, this is Robert Churchill, a gun expert at uh, 32 Orange Street in Leicester Square. Uh, so I'll read his statement. I have a lifelong experience of guns and shooting uh, and for the past 34 years have acted as a gun expert for the Metropolitan Police. On on October the 9th, Divisional Detective Inspector Tarr handed me certain exhibits including an overcoat, a jacket, a pullover and a shirt. Slightly hard to read this one. In the centre seam of the back of the overcoat, I saw a round entrance, entrance hole of a bullet. There was no visible scorching. The bullet had passed through the jacket and the other underclothing, and I found an an exit hole in the lapel of the coat. The exit hole was of a keyhole shape, which usually is an indication that the bullet that the bullet partially spent and turning that the bullet was partially spent and turning sideways. On October the sixteenth, Divisional Detective Inspector Tarr handed me an automatic pistol. 
The pistol is a Colt 45 Remington Rand model and is marked United States property number 1009424. He also handed me several seven rounds of ammunition. This ammunition is a .45 caliber automatic pistol, American service issue, suitable for use uh, out of the exhibit pistol. I have fired the weapon and I find it in good working order and not liable to accidental discharge. Now that's kind of key. That's really what they're looking for here because they know that the uh, um, Carl, his defense will turn around and go, well, he had his gun out. He, it was there. Um, he, he, he was just going to shoot through the car or he was just using it to scare the driver, but he had no intention of, of um, uh, uh, shooting him it was just just to scare him but the gun accidentally discharged and therefore what what robert has done here is he's, he keeps checking it and making sure that it won't accidentally discharge if you, if you look at the freddie mills case um because he'd deliberately bought a gun he wanted a gun that no one would identify as the gun that he would kill himself with so he went to a fairground and his friend said here's a gun uh it was actually a, a rifle for the the shooting range and she said it's not working it's it's a little bit defective and he was like fine and he tested it out inside the car to make sure it did work but that was one of the reasons why he got shot in the eye because he pulled the trigger and the trigger didn't go and then it accidentally discharged um which which is why he got shot in the eye but in this case the gun was gun was it was military issue it was full working order they checked it and there was no accidental discharge uh the statement continues i fired shots at various distances at pieces of cloth with the with the exhibit pistol and similar ammunition to determine the distance uh, of which the powder marks extend beyond the muzzle Although not visible to the naked eye, infrared photographs show markings up to a distance of 8 inches, whilst the overcoat shows no markings. Therefore, I am only able to say that the shot was fired at a distance of at least 9 inches from the muzzle. Um, let me just go to the second page. Uh, I've examined the car, and I find that the handrail, which runs above the back of the front of the seat, is 33 inches above the floor. The bullet mark on the near side of the front door is 28 and three quarter inches above the floor and the smaller bullet mark on the cover of the dashboard uh, glove box is 25 and three quarter inches above the floor. The mark on the near side front door is of exceptional, of exceptional interest as it helps to illustrate the angle and direction of fire. The mark retains the channel uh, the mark retains the channel which was made by a particularly spent bullet hitting it at an angle and ricocheting slightly downwards towards the glove box. I witnessed the experiment made by myself of Dr. Tear, who placed a dummy in the car. Um, what they did, was it was actually a, a dummy of a, uh, a skeleton that Dr. Tear had with him. He turned up with his car and he, he's got all his kit with him. And they put uh, a dummy in the front seat and then they had some rods and they worked out given the fact that the the bullet went through as mentioned in the autopsy it went through uh the rear right um sixth rib and then it came out the other side on the kind of front left midline third rib um so they worked out where the bullet had come from they they positioned it up with the ricochet uh, of the bullet which had gone into the glove box and they used and that therefore they were able to determine that the bullet was fired um from the position behind the driver 
and I'll probably say it in here as well. They worked out that the uh, the shooter himself would have been right-handed because there was no position in order to get that shot right. There's no position for him to be left-handed in order to get that right. So they were able to work out roughly what his height was, where he was sitting. Um, uh, it continues. A perfect reproduction was made when the driver turned to his left uh, and reached over to unfasten the near side back door. Whilst in this position, the shot can be duplicated by a person seated immediately at the back of the driver with the weapon in his right hand. There you go. Um, and with the right hand of or forearm resting on the handrail, the muzzle and the weapon pointing slightly downwards. It is not possible to reproduce the shot from the hip position, either seated or standing outside. It is not possible for any part of the weapon to have been uh, in the hands of the deceased when the shot was fired so there you go that is the uh the assessment of uh robert churchill um i'm gonna dive into let's do the statements we're gonna do the medical statements of both carl and elizabeth alias uh ricky and um what was her name georgina georgie uh when they went to prison so um Carl Holton uh, went to Brixton Prison and this was a medical assessment on the 2nd of January 1945. So this is building up to kind of their court case. Um, uh, yes, the trial, of course, the, the, the trial started 2nd of January at the Central Criminal Court. So this was, you know, same day. Um, who's this from? This would be from uh, J.E. Saville. For people in Britain, that's an unfortunate name to have. <laughs> Let's hope it's not the Jimmy Savile. Um, so, quest. Uh, so here we go. Look, I'll read out this statement. It says, "I have the honour to report the following in regards the state of mind of the above named. That is Carl Halton. Um, he was received here on remand on the fifteenth of November, nineteen forty-four. Since when he he has been under continuous observation in the hospital. Um, he's not." ill at that point and there's nothing wrong with him it's just it's the best place to kind of um to, to be able to keep an eye on him better whereas if he's in a prison cell there's not really a lot they can do um therefore they can kind of write an assessment throughout the day it's a continuous thing uh, i have interviewed him received reports from officers concerning him and have studied his depositions the only source of information I've had as to his uh, personal and family history has been from the prisoner himself. He tells me that his father was a man of a violent temper and that his parents have been separated for some 17 years. His own personal history is negative apart from two minor accidents and I have elicited no history of insanity, epilepsy or other mental disorder. On reception, he was found to be uh, in a satisfactory general health. He had a mild... Oh, I can't read that. Oh, he had a mild acne and some, com and some complain complaint of rheumatism for some weeks previously. He has received treatment for these conditions. Throughout the time he has been here, he has been behaved. He has behaved normally, except for two rather childish outbursts of surly bad temper, which I attributed to boredom. He is a man of average intelligence, and I have found it found no indications of insanity or mental disease. I consider him fit to plead uh, to the indictment. So, uh, pretty much 
not not really a lot to say about him. What what they what they did say with Carl was that he he wasn't very expressive. He he wouldn't really say that much. He he didn't he really didn't like talking about his past. He didn't like talking about his family at all. He'd talk about his mum, but he wouldn't talk about his dad. Um, he wouldn't give away a lot, and he wasn't very expressive. He wasn't very good at explaining himself. Um, so they really didn't get much out of him. But it was kind of like you can see that in, even in prison, he, he he's a little bit petty. He's quite childish. He needs to grow up. And given the fact that he's 22 years old, he should really grow up. But uh, obviously he didn't. Um, this is the same one, but this is uh, for El Elizabeth, uh, a.k.a. Georgina. Um, this was on the 4th of January 1945. Uh, from HMP Holloway. Holloway is kind of North London. It's it's a a, a women's prison. Uh, let's see who signed it off. Um, I can't read. I can't read her name. She signed it, but I can't read her name. Like most people who are medical, <laughs> handwriting is not didn't tend to be very good. Um, so let's do. Uh, I have the honour to submit the report on the mental and physical condition of the above named uh, Elizabeth, uh, who has been under observation in the hospital since her reception on the 14th of October 1944. I examined her on that date uh, and have seen her daily since and I have received uh, and read reports from the nursing sisters in charge. I have also had frequent interviews with her and have received a report from the school she attended and have read the depositions. Um, with this, uh, her parents were quite involved in this. So her parents would regularly turn up at court and were getting involved and were kind of saying, oh, no, you know, she's she's innocent. And they were finding documents and they were really helping the police out and things like that. But because Carl was uh, from America, it kind of made it a lot more difficult. Do you know, and don't forget, this is wartime. It's not like it's not like his family could just jump on a boat and come straight over it's you know it's wartime you just you, you can't really do that so uh um hence even at the end the, the, he was allowed to have a final uh phone call with his wife and his daughter and his mother-in-law but because because there was only one cable which goes underwater i think it's still there today uh, and that was that was the uh international calls that were going through uh it wasn't working so uh they were unable to speak before he was executed um, so here it goes. It's broken down into, into categories. So uh, personal history. Her general health, i.e. Elizabeth, her general health has always been good, although in childhood she underwent two operations for an appendix. Um, family history. There is nothing abnormal to note uh, as she regards her family history. Condition on reception. On reception she was quiet but spoke rationally and was in no way unduly distressed. She appeared to be anemic and was suffering from a mild degree of scabies. Mm, lovely. Um, she, she gave a history that as a child she had run away from home on three occasions after her father joined the forces uh, and that she had been sent to an approved school from which she absconded twice but was released in September 1942. She married in November 1942 but there were frequent quarrels and she came to London in January 1943. She then had numerous situations for very short periods, varying from one to four weeks, as a nursemaid, a chambermaid, a barmaid, an usherette, and a waitress, and then she began to work as a cabaret dancer. Present condition. She has improved in her general health, having gained a stone weight, so, i.e. She's, she's eating quite well while she's in there and sleeping well. 
Um, during the first night after reception, she, she slept restlessly, but continued to sleep for the greater part of the following day. Since then, she has slept extremely well. Kind of interesting, isn't it, that you would think if you're innocent and you're being charged with murder that you wouldn't sleep well. Sometimes the police do say that, that they, they will put suspects in a cell and they will just watch them overnight. They'll go, okay, you need to get some sleep and we'll talk to you in the morning. They'll watch them overnight because if you're guilty and you know you're caught, you'll get good sleep because you're just like, well, I'm caught. But if you're innocent, you'll be you'll be pacing all night because you'd be terrified that you're going to be locked up. So, you know, it's interesting that she did sleep well. During several days following her admission, uh, she remained quiet, reserved and rather dull. Uh, a result of the later hours she had been keeping in the life that she had been leading, she gradually... She gradually, however, became much brighter and livelier. Uh, she has behaved and worked well and has been helpful and cooperative in her life and work of in the ward. Uh, she is a girl of average intelligence who has always been restless and unsettled as regards her work. Uh, in my opinion, she was sane on reception. She is sane at the present time and she is fit to plead to the indictment and to stand trial. So both were fit to stand trial. Um, this is kind of essential. This is kind of, it's important that they get the medical officer of each prison to sign that off to say that they're fit to stand trial because if the medical officer decides that they don't have the mental capacity to do that therefore you know because this is a murder case and therefore it's likely that they're going to be executed you can't execute someone who is mentally deficient um so that's kind of key for what they have to do here so uh oh oh henry kimberley let's read this one we'll read this one and then we're going to go to the, the the other one that um no one ever talks about uh this is a deposition of of henry alfred kimberley um also known as uh harry kimball uh, i think in the episode i referred to him as harry kimball but he is full name henry alfred kimberley um he says I am a war reserve constable of F Division stationed at Hammersmith. About two years ago, I used to visit Paul's Cafe in King Street, Hammersmith. The girl defendant, that's Elizabeth, was serving at the cafe at the time. I got to know her by visiting the cafe. She left about summer 1942. I saw no more of her until October this year. At about 4.30pm on the 11th of October 1944, she was in the new pin cleaners Hammersmith inquiring about a suit. The defendant, Jones, that's Elizabeth, came into the shop. She appeared to have changed very much since I saw her last. She recognised me and spoke to me. She said, hello. It's always weird, back in the 1940s, 50s, everyone spells it H-U-L-L-O. Uh, I don't know when it changed to hello. Hello. Um, she said, hello. I said, uh, I told her she looked rather old and tired. She said, since... Uh, since she saw me last, she'd uh, been a bad girl and had been drinking heavily. I told her she looked rather tired and worried. She said, I have been over the police station for four hours regarding this murder. Uh, she had a newspaper in her hand and she pointed to a column regarding the murder of George Heath. I said, what are you worrying about? You've got nothing to do with it, did you? She said, I knew the fellow they have got inside. She said, uh, but he could have nothing to do with the murder, as he was with me all Friday night. Oh, th sorry, that was her saying that. But she, 
She said, but he could have nothing to do with the murder as he was with me all night. I changed the subject and then again remarked how tired she was looking. And she said, uh, if you had seen someone do uh, what I have seen done, would you be able to sleep at night? I told her the best thing to do would be to go back to the police station and tell the truth. I said, uh, sorry, she said, I have made a statement over there. Um, so there's lots of corrections on this page, so it's kind of hard to read. Um, I have made a statement over there, and if I have to repeat it, I could not do so. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Not being able to repeat a statement of what you were doing the other night says a lot about um, the lack of truth in there. Even in there, because don't forget, this is the first statement that she's talking about, the first statement where she goes, it was complete bullshit. So this is prior to the second statement. Uh, she then said goodbye and left the shop. I went and reported to Inspector Tansel. Uh, this is Henry saying this. I went and reported to Inspector Tansel. Uh, he went to number 311 King Street, Hammersmith. And as we got there, the girl alighted from a, lo a lorry. Um, we approached her and we all went up to her room. Up in her room, she said to me, I'd like to speak to you alone. Inspector Tansel left the room and then she wanted to know why I had brought Inspector back with the inspector back with me. I told her it was because what she had told me in the cleaners uh, and she th and that she and that she ought to tell the truth. She then said, all right, I will tell him. Inspector Tansel came in and I heard her say to him, it's all uh, it's all lies. I, it's all lies. I told you and I'm sorry. I would like to tell you the whole truth was henry's statement so if it hadn't been for henry we probably wouldn't have got anything because we weren't getting anything out of carl carl was in defense mode we also weren't getting anything out of elizabeth as well because she she's was in defense mode but both of them are, are chronic liars as well um so those are those i'm just gonna go into the final one now this was just something that i, I found in the um in the case file itself and i just i just found uh, I, I didn't understand it at first. I didn't understand it why it was there, but it was only when I went back and back through the case file that suddenly it it kind of dawned on me exactly what it was. So I'm going to read it. This is uh, this is um, dated 21st of May 1945. So five months after the trial, um, Carl has already been executed by that point. Um, Elizabeth is uh, sentenced to life. She's for ten years. She will serve nine years. Um, if you remember, um, with her landlady, uh, she, she said to her landlady, she was, she was cocky about the fact that she was going to get through this trial that she said to her landlady, oh, um, I think she said it to Henry, Henry Kimberly. She said to him, uh, tell her to keep my room free, almost as if like, oh, I'll get through this. I'll, I'll be back very soon. And there was a real cockiness about it. Obviously her landlady didn't. That was Mrs. Edris Evans. But this is a letter from the Divisional Detective Inspector um, uh, to uh, the Acting Chief Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police uh, based out of um, Ealing Station. So here we go. To ACC, uh, with further reference to the above quoted correspondence to the letters received from Mrs. Elizabeth Marina Jones. So that's... Um, Obviously, that's uh, Georgina uh, and the governor, HMP Prison Holloway, wherein inquiries are to be made about the whereabouts of seven evening dresses said to belong to Jones. 
Uh, Jones, with Carl Gustav Holton, a member of the American Armed Forces, was convicted and sentenced to death at the Central Criminal Court on the 23rd of January 1945 for the murder of George Edward Heath at Staines. Um, prior to her arrest on the 11th of October 1944, she was a tenant at the furnished room at a premises in uh, 311 King Street, Hammersmith, in the occupation of Mrs. Edris May Evans. Mrs. Evans has been seen and states that Jones's parents called at her place by arrangement on the 3rd of November 1944. The date of the first remand fell to magistrate's court. Um, uh, Georgina and uh, sorry, uh, uh, Elizabeth and Carl were originally uh, held on remand at Feltham because Feltham, um, because the body was down in that part of the, uh, the country, that's where they were taken to in order to, to originally um, uh, be put on remand before uh, they went to kind of main court, which is at the Old Bailey, because uh, Feltham is the magistrate's court. Um, so this is in refer reference to her her parents. Uh, her parents uh, collected all of her effects, including two evening dresses, one black taffeta and one white brocade, and a sax blue unpicked dress, which uh, could have been converted into an evening dress. There were other articles of wearing apparel, and all were packed in two small suitcases, which were tied up with cord and and the uh, overflow was placed in a paper carrier bag and handed to her parents. Jones is insistent that she had seven evening dresses, and in order to clear up this matter in, in dispute, it is suggested that a copy of this report be sent to the Chief Constable, Borough Police, Neath, with a request that he uh, allow one of the officers to call upon the Jones's parents and Mrs Arthur Thomas Baker, that's her mum, um, of... Coronation Street and Neath and obtain one of them in the form of a statement for a description of the property they took away uh, and as for its disposal so it's kind of interesting that there there's, there's so she she's currently in prison or or she was then she's currently in prison for uh, conspiracy to commit murder and kind of associating um aiding a murderer so she's she's doing her her life sentence in there and we've already kind of mentioned throughout this series that there's a real lack of empathy from both of them that it, they're all about protecting themselves and um they're they're committing these murders in order to um steal things and it's not like they're stealing massive things they're stealing crappy little things like a little bit of money and some some um some petrol coupons or clothing coupons you know they, they a, a second-hand watch that's worth five quid that's about the most expensive thing that they get there's nothing that's really outstanding and amazing nothing like you know gold you know gold rings or things like that it's just it's a kind of cheap crap stuff that most average people have um and what she's arguing over is these seven dresses now the problem is um there is no proof that these are her seven dresses um what if if you look back at the story what we see is that quite often like with the girl on the bicycle uh the girl on the bicycle was knocked off the bike they stole her purse and the contents of her bag uh, also with violet as well uh the girl down on the on the water uh who was thrown into uh the river thames they stole her suitcase as well so it it was said in there that some of these dresses belonged to the girl 
The first girl may have also belonged to Violet as well, but also other girls that they stole from as well. So you can kind of see there's a real arrogance within uh, Elizabeth here that she's arguing, even though she's in prison and, you know, she should be serving a sentence and she should be quite upset about the fact that, that uh, she and Carl, Carl who was now Joe, given the ultimate price for his murder, he's dead, he's gone, he's been executed. She's She was given... Uh, grace by the secretary of state who has allowed her to live so she will do seven years and then she'll go on and live the rest of her life but even with that she still wants those dresses she's still insistent that these are her dresses and no one else's even though the likelihood is that they may not even be belong to her at all so um yeah there's an, another statement here when was that yeah further on further on and even a month later she's still arguing about these dresses saying well they're mine and uh i want them back so that's tying up the whole legal system um it was just one of those things that was kind of sitting in the in the case file i thought it was quite interesting and i thought you might want to hear that because i think it gives you a, a, a an interesting insight into into who they are as persons um i think that's it so i hope you enjoyed that folks uh that that is the final part of cold-blooded we're going to take a bit of a break uh, i god knows i need it uh, i'm absolutely knackered i'm not too sure when murder mile is returning it'll probably restart uh end of january start of february uh, i'm having words with uh please come to arsenal guinness to see if we can get in some uh uh, some new blue uh, a couple of episodes of those in january that would be nice also it'd be nice to meet up with pcag and have a pint um so we'll do that so thank you for supporting the show i uh, hope you've enjoyed uh, this year of um, murder mile it's it's been good fun we started with the soho strangler we've done lots of cases that have never been covered before and next year we're going to cover even more cases that have never been covered before or same as with cold-blooded if they have been covered before we're going to cover them in their entirety and get rid of all the crap all the crap that's out there about certain cases that you're seeing like uh films this this series has got a um there's a film I mentioned it in one of the earlier episodes, uh, Chicago Joe and the Showgirl. It's fine. It's full of crap. And unfortunately, a lot of people take that film as fact and then they, they, they hawk it back into their, their own interpretations. But what I try to do is just give you the facts, the real truth. Uh, I think that's the way it should be done. So that's me done, folks. Uh, I'm actually heading off to France now. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get my flight. Uh, so have yourself a good week. Uh, stay safe, be good. Hope you're having a good Christmas. Happy New Year and all that. And thank you for supporting the show. It's very much appreciated. For one final time, lots of love, everyone. Bye-bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.